Comey was spying on Trump. Well, the reason he was writing the memos was to create a record so that he could destroy No them. American knowingly colluded with the Russians to interfere in our election campaigns. Oh wait, unless you mean Hillary Clinton. Pardons, prosecutions, and transparency. You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW TalkNet. Hey everyone, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update here on social media. Thanks for joining us this week. A lot to talk about. We have new information on Susan Rice and Benghazi to share with you. I've got some um, interesting points I think you'll want to hear about Senate testimony about Obamagate and Sally Yates and what that means for James Comey and all of that. Uh, plus, we have new lawsuits on waste, fraud, and abuse related to coronavirus, and plus the uh, the far less war on the police as well. So a lot to talk about. I think first up, I'll talk about uh, what uh, most recently happened this week in terms of Sally Yates going before the Senate Judiciary Committee finally to testify on Obamagate. And the committee is run by Senator Lindsey Graham. And you know, they tried to ask her some tough questions and you know, she's a smart lawyer. She's been doing this for 30 years as a prosecutor, more or less. So uh, she's not going to be easily rolled and nor was she. Uh, but it was interesting in the sense that Sally Yates clearly tried to throw James Comey under the bus in a disingenuous way, which of course much of the media misses, but something that I think I wanted to alert that you should know about, which is that uh, if you hadn't watched the testimony, she was asked, did James Comey go rogue in going to the White House or authorizing the questioning, that ambush interview of Michael Flynn, General Flynn, without his, the FBI's telling senior officials at the White House that it was gonna take place, giving the White House counsel's lawyer heads up or something else. Instead, they used, and Comey, and you can look up the video online, Comey boasted of taking advantage of uh, the lack of experience by the incoming administration to go around the rules and uh, send in these FBI agents in to ambush Flynn. Now, uh, Yates objected to that because she thought the procedure should have been followed, but she was saying, well, it didn't necessarily make it illegal. Of course, we'll argue over that. But you have to, and, and then she said, then she was asked, do you think that he went rogue? And she said, yeah, I think that's a term you can use. Well, you know, let's not overstate or understate Yates' involvement in this. Her disagreement with Comey was a tactical one. In principle, she was on board with the targeting of General Flynn, with trying to um, interfere with the president's ability to conduct foreign affairs by targeting improperly his national security advisor with harassing investigations and smears. Remember, they knew the phone call that he had or phone calls he had with the Russian ambassador were appropriate. They knew, or certainly the FBI knew, that there was no there there. In fact, the FBI recommended that it be shut down. There was no credible information uh, justifying the then uh, here the, the uh, then unprecedented spy operation against Flynn and Trump. Yet they continued it at, at uh, Comey's insistence, and it looks like seemingly at Barack Obama's insistence. So, uh, for instance, Yates was 
pushing this Logan Act crap with the White House as well, at least the, uh, the Trump White House when she uh, first was going over there to talk about General Flynn. And it's pretty clear he wasn't lying about the phone calls, even though they suggested that he was. And it's pretty clear that um, Sally Yates took the extraordinary legal position that an incoming national security advisor would be violating the Logan Act and talking to foreign leaders about the potential policies of his new boss, the president of the United States, Donald Trump. Obviously, that can't be the case, and it's absurd. It was pretextual. They were thinking of a way to spy on Trump, spy on Flynn, and Logan Act was something they had to, they came up with to justify the continued harassment. And the other aspect of Yates's testimony, which I think was bunk, was the uh, uh, her argument that well, you know, I did read the I did look at the FISA warrant application that I think she signed off on either one or two of them. I don't recall now, but she says she read them. And she says, well, she had known that the dossier, there were these problems with the dossier and that there were lies and misdeeds and material omissions, you name it. She wouldn't have signed it. Well, that's falsely suggests that the dossier, excuse me, that the, uh, that the applications themselves were appropriate. Look at them. Judicial Watch obtained them through the Freedom of Information Act, through a lawsuit. Look at them. And you'll see on their face, they were absurd. You'll see on their face, they were full of rumor and innuendo. You'll see on their face, they were obviously coyly written to distract and uh, raise more questions than answers. Certainly you'll see that there was nothing in the dossiers warranting a spy operation against uh, the president's team. Now I know it was about Carter Page, but look at, you can just look at the applications. It was about Donald Trump. They were going through Page to get Donald Trump. So when Yates and say Rosenstein also said similar, said something similar in his testimony before the committee, say, well, if they only had known, they wouldn't have signed on to it. No, they should have known because the documents themselves raised enough questions for them to say, what is going on here? I'm not signing on to this. This is obviously silly. Who are you fooling? Who are you fooling? And I tell you what, Yates and Rosenstein aren't, feel, Rosenstein aren't feeling, fooling me. They're not fooling me. And I don't think they're going to fool you in saying that they only, if they only knew. I, they did know. And they had reason to know that the applications were fraudulent. And I don't know what John Durham is doing. But it doesn't seem to me he's doing enough necessarily to investigate this. No indication, for instance, that Yates has been called to testify before a grand jury as well as, as, as she should have been. What about all these other folks, Clinton and, and Biden and Obama and Comey and Brennan? No indication there's anything serious going on there. In fact, the indications are, again, further this week, the noise is there's going to be a, there's going to be a report. I could give you a report. We have a book coming out. Read our book. You don't need the IG. You don't need a Durham report. Read the Judicial Watch book. I'm sure Durham will have some dirty details. We don't. But we know the broad outlines of the story, don't we? Where are the prosecutions? Where are the prosecutions? And I suspect that John Durham 
is only going to prosecute or get plea deals from um, that FBI lawyer, the agent who supposedly manipulated the FISA warrant application material uh, uh, from the CIA to say that Page was not an asset when in fact he was an asset and a patriot. You know, maybe that's something he'll go after. I don't know. Maybe he'll go after Strzok. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that Strzok is still a target, but I don't, I don't seeing any evidence that that's the case. Comey's going to be writing a new book. Does that sound like someone who's nervous about a prosecution? Did Sally Yates to you seem nervous about a prosecution? Do any of these people seem nervous about a prosecution? We had the Attorney General of the United States, General Barr, um, a few months ago, uh, talk about I uh, that Biden and Obama essentially have nothing to worry about. They're not going to be investigated. They're not under investigation. In the least, they are witnesses. I think they ought to be under investigation, but in the least, they're witnesses. I mean, think of that Oval Office meeting about the Logan Act. Oh, Yates, by the way, says that the Biden didn't mention the Logan Act. So, well, I guess we'll have to ask Biden now directly, right? Figure out what happened. Or ask Strzok directly, figure out what happened. It was his notes that said Biden mentioned the Logan Act. Biden was in on the targeting of Flynn. That's pretty clear. No matter how you slice it. So I don't know what uh, Senator Graham's going to do. Practically speaking, um, the Senate term is over. They're, uh, they go on vacation for a few more weeks. They come back. And then there's another four weeks or so before they go back out uh, to campaign prior to the election. So uh, these hearings, I, you know, I, I guess you can take credit for them. Judicial Watch can take credit for them because you, you bet Senator Graham uh, got some significant pushback on his failure to do anything. And now he's been doing some hearings, which are better than nothing. <laughs> better than nothing. But I know you want grand juries. I know you want a serious criminal prosecution. And look, I don't know if they can make a case one way or another. That's not, that's not the issue. The issue is, are they doing the things indicating that they're investigating it sufficiently? And if they draw the conclusion they draw, you know, we can complain about it, we can disagree with it, but at least you will have seen, well, you know, at least they brought them all in before the grand jury. They didn't give them time. Uh, uh, they didn't give them the special treatment they gave the Clinton gang. It seems to me like they, they still are treating the other side with kids' gloves here. And the other side being the gang that tried to spy on the president, the gang that spied on the president illegally, in my view, tried to put an innocent man in jail and abuse the law in ways never seen before in American history. Why doesn't it Senator Graham bring Barack Obama in to testify or Joe Biden? You know what, why don't you call Senator Graham and ask him that? You can call 202-225-3121, ask for his, ask for his office. Call your individual senator. Say why? Why is Senator Graham not bringing in Barack Obama to testify? Well, you say, well, the pre former presidents can't testify. Yes, they can. Ford testified. President Ford testified. C certainly, uh, Bill Clinton testified before a grand jury. He was interviewed. Uh, President Trump rightly refused to. Uh, well, I guess he probably couldn't have fought it in the end, uh, but um, 
Mueller, Mueller knew at, for all the abuse of Trump, he knew enough that he didn't have enough to force the president of the United States to testify. I mean, that shows you just how weak his investigation was. You don't think Mueller would have forced Trump to testify if they thought he had him? They didn't have anything. But there's nothing preventing President Obama from testifying. There's nothing presenting, preventing Pre Vice President Biden from testifying. And I don't think they should be immune from investigation. We're doing investigations. We've got six lawsuits on Joe Biden. We just sued. I don't remember if I talked about this last week. Well, I will talk about it again. Uh, we just sued to find out where Hunter Biden has been. We have six additional lawsuits to figure out um, what was going on with Burisma and China and Joe Biden. State Department slow walking the release of all those documents. Why isn't Biden under investigation for that? This is the rule for Republicans and this is the rule for Democrats. The rules for Republicans is you're under investigation when you're running for president, after you're president. If the FBI wants to spy on you, they can. The NSA, CIA wants to spy on you, they can. They will do everything under their power. They will impeach you for even asking questions about their illegal activities. If you're a Democrat, if you're running for president, you get immunity. All your people get immunity like Hillary Clinton did. And then if you lose, you get immunity again because, oh, well, you know, she lost. So what, what, what difference does it make if we investigate her or not? So the rule for Joe Biden can't be because he's running for president, he's immune from the rule of law. But that's the way they want it. That's the way it's working right now under General Barr, and I think it's unacceptable. And now I know General Barr doesn't want the Justice Department to start be uh, to kind of seen be seen to interfere with elections. Well, maybe he's between a rock and a hard place there, or catch twenty-two. But because by doing nothing in the face of evidence of criminal corruption, you are interfering. Doing nothing is doing something, which means letting someone off the hook who otherwise would be subject to investigation if they're a regular American citizen. I'm not saying Joe Biden's above the law or beneath the law and deserves a prosecution just because I may disagree with him on a policy or two, but I'm tired of these leftists in town, part of the deep state, part of the left-wing establishment elite being treated differently by federal law enforcement. I'm tired of it. And it's corrupt. And we'll see what happens. But be prepared for to be disappointed by John Durham. You'll get a nice report. We'll have some interesting information in it. But that, as my father used to say, that in a quarter will get you a cup of coffee. And obviously that won't even get you a cup of coffee anymore. Unbelievable. Well, as the rest of Washington sleeps in terms of government corruption investigations, Judicial Watch continues with the heavy lifting. We just found, uh, we just released, excuse me, uh, the sworn deposition answers, excuse me, sworn written answers of Susan Rice to, to Judicial Watch interrogatories. Uh, we had them, uh, we got them last year and uh, you know, I've talked to them about them a little bit, but we so we, we kind of organized it and, and put it out there so everyone can access to it. 
Uh, Susan Rice was a national security advisor for President Obama, involved in the spying on Trump, obviously. I was involved in the unmasking. She was an unmasked Flynn. She also wrote the CYA memo weeks after the fact, um, uh, just before Trump came into office, the memo about that infamous Oval Office meeting with Barack Obama, Joe Biden, her, and Comey, Sally Yates, where they talked about the dossier and going after Flynn. If you want to know about Susan Rice's ethics, ask yourself if your boss came and said, hey, you know what? You know, look, I, I, we're, 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 we're being, our whole team is being turned out of corporate headquarters here. And I was thinking about that meeting we had a few weeks ago. I think we need to memorialize that. You know what I mean? Why don't you go ahead and memorialize that? And by the way, um, we need to get that done uh, before I get kicked out at noon today. Now, did Obama say that to Susan Rice? I don't know. But that's essentially what happened. Susan Rice wrote this memo minutes before the president was sworn in. President Trump was sworn in. The buy the book memo, remember that? But also she was the US and before she became national security advisor, uh, she, um, it looks to me like uh, she proved her worth by lying five times to uh, the American people on the Sunday morning talk shows in the months before President Trump, President Obama's reelection about Benghazi. Remember she blamed the video rather than, and spontaneous demonstrations rather than the terrorist attack in Al-Qaeda, even though they knew otherwise. Remember she lied about Benghazi? Well, we had asked for records about Benghazi and found that the so-called talking points she had said were based on intelligence community assessments were actually based on the political assessment of Ben Rhodes, one of the political hacks working in the Obama White House, who wrote the talking points, and they were completely political. I've looked at every piece of, every piece of document, I think it's fair to say, that's been produced about the Benghazi attack and who knew what and when. There's no evidence the intelligence community concluded that the attack was the result of a spontaneous demonstration that got out of control in response to an internet video that no one had seen. There's no evidence that was the case. There was evidence they knew immediately it was a coordinated attack. There was evidence they knew even before the attack that something was coming down the pike. Yet Susan Rice went and lied for Hillary Clinton and for Barack Obama. Why? Because there was an election coming up and President Obama was running on the fact that, uh, and this is Joe Biden's famous, I remember Joe Biden saying this, and I don't know if he was the only one who said it, but Laden is dead and GM is alive. Not a bad slogan, right? They killed bin Laden and GM was a lot, you know, there's a big controversy about the federal bailout of the car companies and they were taking credit for the bailout. But if bin Laden killed a U.S. ambassador and three other innocents in an attack never seen before in recent American history, the last U.S. ambassador killed in the line of duty like that was the, uh, I think, our ambassador of Afghanistan during the Carter administration. So they had all this incentive to lie, which they did. So Judicial Watch exposed the talking points, and that 
circle of litigation that exposed the Clinton emails because we noticed there were no Clinton emails. We said, where are the Clinton emails? And we pushed and we pushed. And the government finally responded, we gave you everything other than these other documents. Turns out the other documents were the Clinton emails. We forced their release. So long story short, as a result of that, a federal court judge authorized us to get discovery. Discovery meeting evidence gathering. Now you may know right now that we're waiting to question Hillary Clinton because he authorized the release of the deposition in person of Hillary Clinton. And she's desperately appealed that. There, there's a, it's on appeal right now, we're waiting for the decision. It's a mandamus petition. She and her chief of staff, Cheryl Mills, but as part of that discovery, we were allowed to question in writing, send interrogatories, Susan Rice. So I thought, I thought it was important that we get this information out to the American people because Susan Rice has been in the news a lot recently. Plus, we've had this information and we wanted to get it out. And you'll be surprised to learn or maybe not surprised to learn Susan Rice can't remember much. 18 times she said, I don't recall. She said she does not recall who gave her the key Benghazi talking points that I told you about that came from the White House, not the intelligence community. Does not recall being in any meetings regarding Benghazi in the days following the attack. Isn't that amazing? No meetings, she can't remember. And does not recall communicating with anyone in Clinton's office about the Benghazi talking points. So does that mean it did or didn't happen? not clear. She did admit that she did use send emails on Hillary Clinton, I mean, to Hillary Clinton on her non-governmental email system. So she knew. Susan Rice knew. And she herself used private emails to conduct government business. Specifically, when asked to describe meetings or discussions about the events in Benghazi, other than the daily intelligence briefings, Rice said she had discussions with friends and family and does not recall attending any meeting, any meetings focused on the events in Benghazi between September 11th and September 16th, 2012, other than attending a ceremony of September 4th, 2012 with Joint Base Andrews. Rice said she believed she would have discussed the Benghazi attack with members of the UN staff, colleagues of the United Nations and individuals in attendance at the ceremony on September 14, 2012 at Joint Base Andrews. So she didn't talk about, she can't remember any meetings about Benghazi despite being our ambassador to the United Nations. She did not directly answer a question about the leading emails. Rather, Rice answered that when emails related to US government business were sent to her personal email account, she took steps to ensure that a copy of that email was also in her government email account. And she does not recall having need to review and return emails from any government email account, non-governmental email account. So who knows what she was doing according to her own written testimony. Now I know Joe Biden is considering her and some others for vice president. Now the question I have is there going to be accountability on Benghazi about the email issue? My question for the Justice Department is why haven't they investigated Clinton's emails after they found out, I'm pretending here, for, bear with me, 
that the Clinton email investigation was completely uh, corrupted by the Comey FBI. Why haven't they reinitiated an investigation? Why haven't they done an audit? General Barr should do what he did with the Flynn investigation, where he assigned a U.S. Um, and there are lots of things he should do, but here's one thing he can do. Uh, in the least, he should assign a U.S. attorney, like he did with uh, General Flynn, to review the, the Clinton case and do an audit to see if those prosecutorial non-decisions were appropriate. Did the FBI do what they should have done? Of course, they didn't. That's why they don't want to do the review I'm talking about. Did the DOJ make the right decision? Of course, they didn't. It was corrupted. We all knew it was rigged. Remember the tarmac meeting. I go through all of this, by the way, in our new book. So maybe the DOJ can read the new book. You know, I sent out a tweet today. And, it's, and I, just, I just started off the I wrote Sessions, Uber, Bar, Durham, all in one word, just one long word. That's my perception. Nothing's changed. And if I really wanted to be mean, I would have put Holder Lynch Sessions, Uber Bar, Durham, one long word. From Judicial Watch's perspective, there hasn't been much difference. Now, I know in terms of policy, the DOJ has done significant, there have been significant changes in policy. That's for sure. But in terms of transparency and accountability, same old, same old. What's the difference between Attorney General Barr and General Sessions? There isn't that much. Rhetorically, obviously, Attorney General Barr is much more effective in terms of communicating and defending um, the, uh, the presidency and the Constitution against the assaults it's undertaking, it's, it's going through right now and had went through with Russiagate. But in terms of prosecutions, not, no difference. Although I do think, to be fair, I think the big difference would be, uh, I don't think Sessions would have been able to undo the Flynn investigation the way that uh, Barr did. Certainly Rod Rosenstein wouldn't do what Barr did in terms of ending that corrupt prosecution. So uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, if, uh, because we've got a campaign going on there's all these efforts to kind of scare Barr from doing the right thing. He should do the right thing on Obama, on, on Clinton, and vindicate President Trump. Because President Trump is a crime victim. General Flynn is a crime victim. He needs also to be investigating the Mueller investigation, which is part of the, co the criminal, uh, criminal conspiracy against General Flynn in the least. And it's not stopping for President Trump. The coup is continuing. There's decisions this week in court. The House is now still pushing the twist to get Don McGahn, the president's former White House counsel, to testify. That was an impeachment inquiry. There's this U.S. There's this New York-based uh, uh, attorney, district attorney, excuse me, the uh, DA in New York, Cyrus Vance Jr., harassing the president by going after his tax returns. Where'd that investigation come from? It came from Mueller initially. It handed it off to the anti-Trumpers in the Southern District of New York. 
who then kicked it over to New York, to the New York attorney, district attorney in the city there in Manhattan. You saw the harassment of President Trump by the Attorney General of New York. Now the Attorney General of New York, who's a radical leftist who ran, made political statements when she was running how she was going to target Trump, the NRA. Now she wants to dissolve the NRA. Dissolve it. Three months before the election, she announces this press conference that the leadership of the NRA are terrible people. And therefore, the whole organization needs to be dissolved. The left is playing for keeps. Those of us who are defending the rule of law have, it's just judicial watch. It's really just judicial watch. And the president's got lawyers trying to protect him here and there. So the crisis continues, uh, but you can be sure that judicial watch will continue we're, as I said, seeking information, uh, seeking testimony about uh, Hillary Clinton or from her. We'll see what the court rules there finally. But we're, we're, we're still doing it. We're still doing it. People say, well, well, it's so long. Well, it hasn't been that long. The statute of limitations isn't run out. And plus, we still have a right to the documents. According to the law, it hasn't been long enough. But of course, the law doesn't apply to Hillary Clinton, right? Not as best witness, but not if there's anything we can do about it. So we had um, two additional lawsuits I wanted to tell you about. Uh, this first one is interesting. We, you know, we, we do local lawsuits every once in a while um, uh, because we think they're important in terms of highlighting a key rule of law issue. Uh, but I also show that the corruption issues aren't just here in Washington, D.C. And of course, one of the big issues out there is the uh, crazed attack of the war on the police, where you have uh, these radical communist revolutionaries trying to kill police officers in New Orleans, I mean, excuse me, in Portland. And uh, you have politicians uh, of the left coddling, protecting, and condoning, and in many ways encouraging this violent attack on the police. You've got this defund the police move, which isn't about saving taxpayer money and gaining efficiencies. It's about defanging and destroying the police in terms of their ability to protect themselves and you and the rule of law. Now, in, uh, there was a big issue out in Virginia, which is um, in Prince William County, which is a little bit west of Washington, D.C., and uh, we filed a lawsuit against, and it just we filed it this week, against uh, members of the Prince William County Board of Supervisors regarding a violation of Virginia's open meetings law. What had happened is that on Saturday night, May 30th, various protests and rioting occurred in Prince William County. I mean, you think these protests are only happening in the big cities? No, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. No town is safe from the violent communist revolution. It resulted in numerous injuries to police officers and extensive property damage, like a lot of these other riots have. Police officers reportedly used tear gas and pepper spray and rubber bullets to disperse the crowd, as in my view was appropriate. The next day, a meeting of the police department, Citizens Advisory Board, was held 
All five Democratic supervisors attended the meeting, but the board's three Republican members were not notified of the meeting and did not attend. And the individual who chairs the advisory board happens to be the husband of one of the Democrat supervisors. How do you like them apples? They violated the Freedom of Information Act, which requires these open meetings. And holding a meeting in secret without notice to any of the Republicans. Or those citizens out there who might have an interest in how their government is operating and what the police should do when faced with violent rioters. What is the law? The law prohibits the gathering of two or more members of the same public body if any public business is transacted or discussed. While no votes were cast, the Democrat members posed questions and provided directives to the police, directives to the police to curtail the use of crowd control measures in future demonstrations or future disturbances, as I would more appropriately put it. So we're glad to do this local lawsuit in Prince William County. And I know this is an issue that many of you have run into, especially if you're active in your local community. And honest politicians at the local level are very much aware of these open records laws and these open meetings laws. And that's why they have to, they're very careful about, you know, any business of the government they do in an open meeting. And this is particularly disturbing because people's lives are on the line and you have these leftist Democrats directing the police uh, in a way that would, uh, to change policy in a way that would probably increase property damage and injury and potential loss of life. So in Virginia, these cases tend to move quickly. So I should have a result for you, hopefully soon. Hopefully it's a positive result. We never know if we're gonna win. We don't always win these lawsuits. I told you about the Schiff lawsuit. We were trying to get Adam Schiff's secret subpoenas of American citizens. Did you know that he can do secret subpoenas of American citizens? And he doesn't want to be able to be forced by any court to turn them over to anybody? But we lost that initially in that fight. But the point is we're engaged in the battle. And going to court is important, not only because we're trying to pursue on behalf of ourselves, or in this case, on behalf of citizens, an important point. People have been damaged, they, the rule of law needs to be upheld, but we're educating people by suing. We're educating them. These lawsuits are educational. They're good law in the sense that they're pursuing something that needs to be pursued in the court and the icing on the cake is they're educational. So why the left hates Judicial Watch? Because they know what we do is effective because people pay attention to the lawsuits. They understand the issues that we're pursuing in the lawsuits. And we expose the corruption of big government, unaccountable government. And often socialist government. So I'll keep you updated on that. Uh, next up is another interesting lawsuit against the Trump administration. 
Now, you know, in the beginning of the administration, excuse me, in the beginning of the COVID crisis, they were spending money like a, uh, uh, a drunken sailor. Although as someone reminded me, as uh, Ronald Reagan used to say, don't compare government spending money to a drunken sailor because drunken sailors, at least they spend their own money. Well, in this case, we spent $3 million on masks that we couldn't use. And we gave it to, uh, through the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, in the Department of, uh, uh, associated with the Health and Human Services, uh, they were trying to buy masks for the Navajo Nation. And um, they came up with a $3 million contract with someone, a former Trump uh, White House guy, uh, Mr. Fuentes, who formed the company 11 days before he got the contract for $3 million. Turns out the masks were made in China, and it turns out they weren't adequate for using in the healthcare setting. They were the N95 masks that we've all heard about. And this was all exposed by ProPublica. So this is uh, the Indian Health Service is part of the, excuse me, the uh, Health and Human Services. So they gave this guy $3 million contract. Now the HHS is saying, look, we needed to get these masks. We weren't sure where we could get them. So we were just trying to get them anywhere we could. Well, that's fine. Give us the details of what went on here. Because I don't know about you, I wouldn't have thought that I would be able to form a company in the middle of a crisis and 11 days later get a $3 million contract. So I suspect something went on here that's not appropriate. And this is a pretty simple lawsuit. We asked for the documents about this contract and anything that went on in terms of awarding it, the document back and forth. We haven't gotten the information. So it's pretty obvious that um, HHS needs to get its act together and give us uh, the documents to the simple request about a coronavirus mass contract that obviously is suspect, obviously. And this goes to show you that this is why it doesn't matter who's the president of the United States, there's always going to be corruption. There's always going to be issues that need to be investigated. Maybe this is all innocent. Maybe this, this, this entrepreneur saw an opportunity, the government needed something and he put it together and he deserved the contract and you know, they changed the rules and it turned out they weren't good enough masks. Maybe it's all innocent, I don't know. Someone's gonna ask the question. And we know that Congress didn't really do it. You know, to the degree Democrats, I'm sure Democrats are the only ones interested in this one. But because they're so crazed anti-Trump partisans, they'll be, they probably won't get a response from the administration or we can't trust them to analyze it fairly. That's why Judicial Watch comes in and does independent investigations like this. So that's what we're doing on here. In the meantime, um, we've got uh, multiple lawsuits and investigations on the use of hydro hydroxychloroquine on Senator, excuse me, not Senator. He's not a Senator yet. Dr. Fauci's emails uh, with uh, about coronavirus WHO in China in the first part of the crisis. We haven't gotten any emails yet. Uh, and um, so we're, we're on top of everything that you're concerned about. Everything you're concerned about, you can be sure we're likely investigating it. So with that, I uh, will tune, uh, will let you tune out, I guess. I'll see you next week here on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update.
You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.